thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast for people who value real, different conversations, dialogues about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. Today, we have a super fun episode with American Gladiator superstar, Dan Nitro Clark. And you're going to love this guy. He's a former NFL player, best-selling author, speaker, uh, fitness freak, and heart attack survivor. And, you know, for a big, manly, strong, muscly-looking dude with a reputation like his, you might be surprised to hear he's incredibly open, candid, and dare I say, even vulnerable. We dig into his life as an athlete and a celebrity, and he talks about what it's like to be among some of the earliest athletes in America to take steroids and uh, what he learned from that. We talk about coming back from major setbacks and a whole lot more. I think you're going to love this conversation with Dan. Go to lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D, for more on his books. He's got a couple of great books, including F Dying, How Cheating Death Kicked My Ass Into Loving, Learning, and Living My Best Life, and Gladiator, A True Story of Roids, Rage, and Redemption. And he's also got a red hot new podcast out that I suggest you check out called The Gladiator Way. Now, I've been an advisor uh, and on the board and or on the board of about 50 venture-backed Silicon Valley startups. And what I can tell you from my personal experience is that legendary high-growth companies plan from success from a plan for success from the very start. And part of being successful is having a powerful, scalable business. It's a must-have if you want to be a category-dominating company. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. If you want to take your company from the garage to the IPO and beyond, from 2 million to 10 million, from 10 million to hundreds of million, millions, NetSuite by Oracle is your platform for growth. Because with NetSuite, you'll get a full picture of your business, including finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your computer, and of course, your smartphone. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control that you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's what has made NetSuite the world's number one cloud business system trusted by more than 19,000 companies. To schedule your free product tour right now and to receive your free guide, The 7 Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, visit netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. NetSuite, business grows here. Additionally, getting digital has become a top CEO priority globally. As a matter of fact, I personally believe uh, there's going to be two kinds of businesses over the next couple of years, digital ones and ones that aren't around. And that's why my friends at Splunk are one of the fastest growing enterprise technology companies in history. You see, Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Splunk helps you bring data to every question, decision, and action. Visit Splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything, and learn how you can turn data into doing that splunk.com slash d2e all right now dan nitro clark hey ho let's go so Back in, gosh, after the first year of American Gladiators, the first year of American Gladiators, um, and that was when no one knew what this thing was. They had me wear this like bolero uh, top where it was little straps that went across my pecs in a, in a cross. If you look at the first season, you can see them. And I had this side effect from taking roids back in the day called gynecomastia or more popularly referred to in the Urban Dictionary as bitch tit. It's where your body, t- you take too much testosterone, so your body starts to produce estrogen and you're, you get a little formation of a little booby in your chest. And it kind of hangs down. It looks weird. I hate to interrupt you, but you're taking steroids to be a big, strong, manly man. 
and the gift you get is booze. Is that what you just told me? <laughs> you get a little, well, not for everybody, but for some, like, look, some guys already have it. You know, like you, you go to the beach and you see a guy who's never taken a roid in his life, but he's got those little, little boobs that hang down. But uh, it's, it is a side effect of steroids. You know, now people are smarter. Now people know that you have to take an estrogen blocker. But back in, you know, when I first went to the steroid doctor, that wasn't, it was back in 1982. And it wasn't something like it is now where, oh, steroids. Yeah, I know what that is. It, a 12 year old knows what it is but back then nobody knew what it was there was no legislation saying that it was illegal so i went to one of the first steroid doctors in 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 america i was here in california so i was injured my freshman year playing football and i saw the dreams of getting a scholarship the first guy from my high school ever to get a scholarship where i come from santa Ana, to a d1 school i saw that dream evaporate and i was training i was trying to get back to you know a size where i could get a scholarship and i couldn't do it and I saw this guy in the gym. He was huge, man. And I was like, dude, you're huge. What are you doing? He says, like, I take steroids. And, and Chris, I had no idea what he was talking about. You know, I was like, what? What are they? And he says, well, I go to the doctor. They help you recuperate faster. Maybe these guys, I think, you know, they, 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 some people say this guy named Arnold and Ferrigno and a few football players are taking these things. And as a, you know, 17 and a half year old kid, I, I graduated high school early. This is my freshman year in college. And I was wide eyed. And I was like, what? Bigger, stronger, faster, any side effects? No, man, I get it from a doctor. They're safe. So I went and saw one of, uh, one of the first steroid doctors in America up in, up in LA. I went, I went like the next week with him. I was 17 and a half and he sent me home. He said, no, no, you got to be 18. I was like, ah, oh, damn it. So I waited until my 18th birthday and my dad, I'll never forget, he gave me $172 to start my journey on, on hormones, on testosterone so I could get that scholarship do you tell your dad what you were going to do? Yeah, but again, it's now you know what it is. Your son comes in and says that to you, you're smacking him in the head, you know. But back then, I was like, what do they do? Well, I'm getting from a doctor. They're supposed to, you know, help you recuperate faster so I can train and get stronger, right? I mean, that was the pitch. Look at this monster next to me, dad. Look how big he is. And he says they help and they're safe. He's been doing them for, you know, a few years. Well, okay, great. Go. He gave me $172. I went there and, you know, he, uh, Brought me in, did an examination, told me what they were and uh, told me how to do them. And he opened this drawer, his cabinet, and all of a sudden, you know, these gleaming lights hit and there was like this aria music, like, ah, and it was all these bottles of testosterone. And he goes, okay, pull your pants down, bam, right there, right there in the cheek. Uh, I think I, he also supplemented some vitamin B and he gave me a couple oral steroids. Back then, it was very common to stack them. You took an a intermuscular injection along with um, something oral to get the biggest benefits. And it, it, you know, the great thing about steroids is they work. Absolutely, do they work? But you got to train. How fast do they work? Um, as much as you're willing to put the hard work in. And what I mean by that, Chris, is that you work your ass off. Your body's going to recuperate faster than having to take all that time to repair. I think the fallacy in the misinformation is like, you know, anybody who takes steroids is going to get huge. No. You're not going to get huge. You still got to move weight. Yeah, you got to move weight. It's just, it, it, look, you see these big guys and you think, you know, juice heads, yeah, but it still takes in a tremendous amount of work and effort and diet. I mean, you got to go be willing to die every workout. I can't take steroids and drink IPAs on the couch and look like you or Dwayne The Rock Johnson or whoever. Uh, no. It, and by the way, and if you can, I'd like you to explain how, because I could get into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I always believe in first person experience. <laughs> you know, if it's something that you want to do, you, you know, you just get your levels tested and, and it's much more, um, uh, much more regulated now. You know, all these uh, testosterone replacement clinics, these uh, TRT therapy. You know, I, I know uh, quite a few executives here in Hollywood that are doing the TRT thing. You know, uh, dude, you're on roids. No, no, I'm not. I, I am taking a TRT, <laughs> testosterone. It's a steroid, you know. Well, uh, and uh, I'm a huge UFC and MMA fan. And for a long time in the UFC, as you probably know, uh, fighters, if they had a note from the doctor, could be on TRT. Yeah. And they're smashing each other in the head. You know, it's one thing when baseball players are on it or whatever, but when football players or when these physical sports or combat sports uh, and people's brains are getting rattled and stuff. It, 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 doesn't turn, it doesn't turn you into an Avenger. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? You're not a superhero. It can add, you know, maybe 20%. And that's the challenge, you know. A lot of times, and I just had a conversation about uh, with an athlete about this, and they were saying, nowadays, steroids, it's an intelligence test. You know, when you're trying to pass a anabolic or PED test, it's an intelligence test. You can pass it. I mean, look at the most tested athlete ever, you know, Lance Armstrong. He passed on every test. You look at Conseco Bonds, they passed all the tests. They got busted when uh, Balco, you know, the organization, yeah. when they raided them and they found their names in there. So it's just an intelligence test. But the, I think, I don't know, man. I, sometimes I just say, you know what? Let it go. Just let people do it. You know, it's your choice. If you want to do it, go do it. And then, you know, hey, Ricky, Ricky, Dave, Bob, Mike, you, Lisa, you have the choice. You want to do it or not? Or, you know, you don't do it, but just people are going to cheat. People are going to try to find a way to get that competitive advantage. And that's just a society that we live in. You know, people want to be seen. People want to stand out. They want to be special and they'll do, you know, what it takes to get there. Hmm. Now, I remember there was a documentary. You probably would remember the name of it a little while ago, some bodybuilders trying to build the case that steroids weren't actually bad for you at all. And that to your point, everybody should be allowed to just have at it. In the sense that, um, you know, the TRT, it's like this. So you go into the doctor, right? And the doctor looks at your testosterone levels. And if they're below a certain marker, below 350, 400, they can legally prescribe you something to get you back up into an optimal range. So you're what other people have your age that you're competing against, right? Maybe genetically you weren't, didn't have the same, maybe for whatever reason you, that you don't have the same amount. So it puts you at, on a fair playing field. So in that sense, I don't know if there's a lot of harm. I think the harm comes when you start to do monstrous levels, you know, with anything excess. And there's equally when you have low testosterone, there's, you know, increased cardiac incidences. There's, you know, all these other side effects as well on both sides, too much, too little. And the idea, you know, is to be in the optimum range. Just like if, you know, you, you, you were diabetic, you needed insulin and you're not going to go. Right. And so, you know, what have you learned through all of your ups and downs with this issue? Well, are you talking my ups and downs in life in general, Chris? Are you talking about just steroids? You have had more lives than most five dudes combined, but we'll, we'll maybe get to some of that in a sec. But I mean more about sort of how you think about steroids now. You know, I learned the, the simple things, you know, uh, they make your balls shrink. <laughs> simple. They make you, you get small balls. <laughs> that, that'll be the sound bite. You get small balls. <laughs> well, just because your body's not producing uh, testosterone is, uh, itself because it shuts down. I've also learned that there are side effects. But I also learned that when you get on it, you start a train that's hard to get off. Because when you get off, you're at a negative level of testosterone production. So if you were producing, you know, 400 before you bump it up to, you know, to 2000. And then when you go off of it, because your body says, Hey, you're putting this in me. I don't need to do this. I don't need to make this. So it stops making it. Then you're really, really low. I've also learned that it gives you thicker blood. So you have to be careful, you know, with operations because there's blood clots, there's heart attacks. I've also learned that um, it increases your red blood cell count, which also gives you sticky blood. So I think a lot of these wrestlers and football players you see dying at a young age, uh, I, my belief is that they're doing light amounts of testosterone thinking that it's not going to hurt them and they're not monitoring correct, uh, correctly. And all of a sudden, you know, bang, you know, you're done. You have a stroke, you have a you know, heart attack, you have something. And then if you say, okay, well, that's off the table, how do you think about uh, supplementation? Uh, you know, it's, it's a massive industry. There seem to be some legitimate things and a lot of ridiculous bullshit elixir things. And so um, how do you as a professional athlete think about that, that part of the nutrition game? Well, well for me, again, I, I, I don't think, you know, testosterone's off the table. Not for me. I'm, I'm very low right now, and I'm going to go see a friend of mine uh, at Novus here in Southern California because I just went and got the test. I'm down in my 200s. So I'm taking something uh, which is a precursor to testosterone called a human chorionic gonadotropin. And what that does is it uh, causes your body to make more testosterone naturally to see if I can get back to a good level. I'll know if I do. If not, I'll, I'll, I'll go and take TRT and monitor it closely. 
you know. And what about things like DHEA or things along those lines? Do they not just give it enough of a bump to make a difference? No, not really. Especially since my endocrine system is so jacked when I was young, you know, from doing it for, you know, 20 years. Um, But so I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to trying to live optimally. You know, what I am opposed to is for people saying, oh, 100% natural, look at me, just follow my program. You can look like me, you can run like me, just do what I do. And then someone's doing that, male or female, and they're not getting near the results. And they feel like they're doing something wrong, that they're inferior. Because no one's, you know, pulling back the curtain and saying, this is how you get the gains that you want right. to get gains. In the supplement market, they do the same thing to sell the supplements. They get a guys, you know, who are jacked on, on roids and shit. They look buff and they're like, hey, buy this protein and you're going to look just like me, you know? And um, the truth is they're not going to look just like you or them uh, if they're taking, you know, the, taking the, the bean, the juice, you know, that's not going to happen. So I think that needs to be fixed. I think there needs to be more transparency with people who are taking junk. So it doesn't let the average guy who's busting his ass every day and not getting the results feel like he's doing something wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. And, you know, like a lot of things, it's uh, we're being sold a dream that is not real for most people and, and shouldn't probably be real for most people. Yeah, for, for me, my focus, Chris, has changed to, you know, a little bit more longevity. I want to be healthy. I want to be fit and I want to live a long frickin time. Um, you know, the, the cards are already against me. You know, if you just look at the facts, um, I had a heart attack at 50, 49 years old. Okay. So what's the life expectancy of someone who's had a heart attack under 50 years old? It's like 64, 65. It's, it's not long. So the, wow. the, yeah, the cards are against me. Number two, uh, I had back surgery a year, a year and three months ago, a three-level major back reconstruction uh, where I had a fusion and artificial disc, which is a, the artificial discs are amazing. Uh, and How's your mobility now? I'm curious. Amazing. Amazing. Really? So you haven't lost range of motion? So again, I had uh, in the old days, and I went to four different hospitals. They all would have done fusions. So three to the four doctors said, "Okay, we want to fuse you three levels, four levels." And and but you know, it's going to ruin your life that you know the way you know it. You're not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Bend, move. You know, unless you're in so much pain, which I was. We don't really advise you doing it. You're like, oh, great. Then I went and saw this guy that my friend recommended who was in a clinical trial where they put artificial discs in. So instead of pulling the disc out, which they start the same, pulling disc out, putting bone marrow in between the disc space of the vertebrae, screwing a steel plate between the top vertebrae and the bottom vertebrae, hoping that that disc they took out because of that magic bone dust makes one joint, right? The second you do that, you take away the flexibility in one joint, the next vertebrae above it takes all the impact. So they call it adjacent disc syndrome. With artificial disc, it starts the same, you take it out, but you actually put an articulating disc with springs in it so you can move, you can bounce. It's like in the old days, they used to fuse knees. Like you had a bad knee, you couldn't walk, they would fuse it, so you'd be like a, a peg leg. <laughs> you know, you walk with a peg leg. And well, it's funny, as you're talking, I'm thinking, I, I, my left meniscus is fucked. And so I got to go get the meniscus thing done to it. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, hmm, I, that sounds like, I don't, what do I know? I'm not a doctor, but uh, spent a little time on WebMD. You could probably do that for your knee just like you can your back, right? Well, of course they do. They put, they put, it's called a knee replacement. That's, that's what I was getting at, Chris. Before they used to fuse your leg. You, you, you had a problem. Now they do knee replacements. Uh, no, but if you have a little meniscus, that's that's a different story than a knee replacement. Is a pretty Maybe a little split. shock absorber in there. Yeah. So what they do now is is they just replace your disc in your lower back, and I have full flexibility. Um, I was, you know, I'm not deadlifting a lot. I'm only doing maybe 300 pounds, like five times. So it's not a lot of strength where I was before. But yeah, I'm playing tennis. I'm playing pickleball. I'm jump roping, I'm running, I, and uh, I can do anything I want to do again. I can. I did yoga this morning. I can bend down and touch my toes. I'm 55 years old and I have three levels in my lower back that were would have been fused, but they're replaced with, uh, with discs. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's a, people look at me and they're, it's, I'm like, what? Because my dad had that same surgery 
30 years ago and he was stuck in our living room for six months in a hospital bed. He had a fusion and I was not going to do that to myself. Wow. Well, I'm glad to hear it's, uh, it's working out so well. May it continue. Yeah, so you, you, you bat, so to put a, a cap on the roids, this the testosterone thing, I, I think you have to really look at male or female and say, what are my goals? What am I trying to do? You know, do I want a little more energy? Do I want to bring my libido up? Um, do I want to be a little trimmer, be able to work out and train more? And, and if you do and you're not within the levels you're supposed to be, I, I'm all for it. You know, go go do it. Who do, right? It, if I said, hey, Chris, take this. You can take this right here. You're going to lose a little body fat. You're going to get a little bit stronger. You're going to be healthy. There's very little risk if you stay in this amount when I give you a blood test and range. Oh, yeah. And you're going to be banging your wife more. So she may not like it. I mean, is that something you're going to, you'll be interested, right? Absolutely. And I think to your she point, was a cheerleader. She was a cheerleader at San Jose State. She, she would, you, right? She's a beautiful lady. There's no question about that. <laughs> but, you know, the interesting thing is, like, where do you draw the line? People can be judgmental about X, but not Y. You know, for example, today, I went and I got my allergy shot. And I go once a week. Uh, and it turns out, if you're somebody like me who's got allergies and it's in my family and you like animals and you don't want to, everybody, everybody you know has a dog and if you can't go over to their fucking house and your wife wants cats and what are you going to do? So, you go to the doctor and they literally retrain your immune system. They figured out how to do this. They test you and they say, okay, you're allergic to this plant and this dog and da, 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 And they make a special concoction of the shit you're allergic to. And then they poke you with it once a week for years. But now we have two cats who live in the house, right? So I, I don't know. This is a radical therapy idea to me, right? And it works. And it, to your point, has made a major transformation in my life because A, my wife is happy we have these cats. And B, more importantly to me, although the cats are wonderful, if you know, if I want to go hang out with you and Jason, and Jason's got what, 400 dogs now or whatever? He's got. <laughs> he's got, I think he's got seven dogs, Jason does. Anyway, you get my point. So my, my doctor, Dr. Kathy, says better living through chemistry. Yeah, it's the exact thing. Do you, do you, if your body isn't making something, do you want to live uh, at an optimal level? And are you going to take the precautions to make sure that you're in that level? So, you, you know, you go in and, and you, you try this out and you go back, get a blood test. Oh, no, no, that's a little too much. Let's take you off. Let's take you down. Oh, your body's producing estrogen. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of chemistry. And look, if we're going to live, why not live better? Yeah. You know, why not live healthier? Why not have more energy? You know, why not, uh, you know, have increased uh, sex drive? Yes. But just like everything else, drink responsibly, young man, right? Yeah. Well, I'm not talking about teenagers. I'm talking about grown ass men. I'm talking about us. Yeah. yeah. No, but, but I mean, like anything like, well, y y you got to monitor well, now I'm thinking about what Mae West said. Too much of a good thing can be wonderful. So I don't know. I guess what your doctor tells you to what to do is right is the right answer. Uh, oh, I, you know what? I still don't believe that. I, I so you know no? I, when, I, when I was younger, I was like, oh my god, someone's a doctor. You know, most doctors take one nutrition class in the, all of medical school. One nutrition class. I have a good friend who's a, a one of the top neuro brain surgeons in the country, and he comes to me for nutrition advice for supplement advice. You know, he, I, we don't, we don't, we don't say that. Look, I can open up your brain. I know every single thing I can save your life, but I don't know what I'm supposed to eat. You know, eat. I don't know what's better for me. I don't know what. So uh, the fact that these doctors just, you know, that know everything, but yeah, look, if I, uh, I don't have to get my colonoscopy, <laughs> dude, you know what? Have you had your colonoscopy? Speaking of, I, I have not, I have not either. And now why won't you go? Cause I know why I don't want to do it, but why are you, you're, you're the health guru. Well, I'm not even, but I'll tell you why. My doctor, right? He's telling me I need to get one. I need to get one. I need to get one. My doctor is 54 years old. And I said, have you gotten one? He's like, no. And I said, shut up, shut up. Don't tell me I need to go get one. If you're not, if you're my age and you're not getting one, but in all seriousness, I think it's, uh, everyone tells me it's the right thing to do. But when I had these, um, th these blood clots after this back surgery, I ended up with four in my calf and I ended up with two pulmonary embolisms 
after my back surgery, I had to do a lot of PET scans and all this stuff. And they told me my, 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 uh, my uh, derriere was clean. It was clean. So I didn't have a, the traditional one, but I saw that there was no cancer. And maybe I'm being ignorant. I don't know. And also, right now, I'm on these blood thinners to try to get rid of these blood clots. Um, they're, they're almost gone. The, the pulmonary embolisms, there's just little scar tissue in my lung, not much. And then uh, there's still one little pesky one in my uh, right calf. So I'm on a lot of blood thinners. The same amount of blood thinners that Chris Bosch was taking and the reason he had to retire. So if like mm. j- if I get you know banged in the head or if I fall down or something, I could bleed out. I don't think I'm going to, but I could. So they can't do any procedure on me like that. Um, because if they nick something, I could bleed out. So was there ever a time in your life that you weren't grappling with tackling some kind of physical challenge of one sort or another, wrestling with your body in one way or another? I, I don't know. And no one's ever asked me that, Chris. I, I, I you know, I, I think we're built to move. I just think we're built to move. And, 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 you know, for me, there's a, an adventure gene, but it's also the way, you know, I found significance in this world. Right. And what I could do with my body, what I could, you know, how I could perform. That's, that's how I found to be important. Yeah. And when I was a young, when I was a young kid, the first time anybody ever complimented me, anybody ever said anything good about me was when I was a fresh, a sophomore in high school and I did a good play in the football field and practice. And the coach slapped me on the back, said, good job, Clark. And I can tell you, man, Chris, that was such an amazing feeling. I knew I wanted that. I knew I wanted that. So I worked for that um, appreciation. I worked for that adoration because that was the first way I knew how to feel good about myself. You know, get smacked on the back and then I'd do another play, get smacked on the back. Then it'd be in the game, you know, I'd make a play and the guys would cheer and go, oh yeah, go get it, Clark. And that was what fueled me for a long time. You know, and I think the biggest mistake for me was I didn't really you know, I, I didn't have, a, uh, my childhood was kind of weird. So I didn't have a parents who, uh, where I really understood what, a what love was. So I mistook adoration for love. You know, the, when I went and, you know, we sold out Madison square garden to an American gladiators. When we played San Jose state played Stanford, there were 75,000 people. And when I did something and everybody rose up to their feet in there, they cheered for me. I felt whole, I felt complete. You know, hey, I'm being loved. And it was, you know, it was just momentary adoration. Yeah. I know I sound pretty smart, right? It took taking me 55 years to figure that out. Yeah. Well, it takes a lot of us a long time to figure out what might, in retrospect, look very simple. But you said you had a weird childhood. And you tell me a lack of love. I know, right? Lack of love. So... I think like 65% of uh, the American population, my parents are divorced at four when I was four. Uh, not so tragic. A little different. My mom was Japanese. She barely spoke the language. Uh, my dad met her when he was a Marine over um, in Japan. So my dad went over, well, we were back here in the States. My dad uh, divorced my mom when I was four. And what was different was that my mom got custody of my sister and my dad got custody of me and my older brother. And that was a little different, but my dad told her, I said, look, you give me any crap, I'll have you deported. He was, you know, that kind of guy. And she was scared. She didn't want to get deported and not see her kids. So she took my sister. Then my father, you know, uh, he took us away from my mother and he dropped us off in Minnesota from California for four years with my aunt and my uncle, his brother. Hey, I want my kids. <laughs> oh yeah. You stay here for four years. <laughs> so. Wow. There was, you know, where do I belong? I miss my mom. How do I get here? But the one good thing I was with my older brother, man, my older brother's my hero, man. He was a stud. I was so comfortable in his shadow. Then um, after being in Minnesota for four years, where it finally felt like a family and I love my aunt and my uncle, my dad shows up. He had been in Vietnam working as a contractor and he had started a business and he said things were good. So in 72, he picked us up, my brother and I, and he took us to Vietnam to live. Uh, and you know, it was a country in turmoil. We lived in Saigon. He had a restaurant, he had a business and being plucked from Minnesota <laughs> to Vietnam, where there's a war, you get to the airport, there's guys with M16s, there's tanks in the street. It was just like, holy shit, this is different. But I felt okay. I felt okay. Cause again, I, I had my stud of a brother, you know, uh, my older brother is two years older than me with me. And we lived in Vietnam for two years. And then the country started to fall. Uh, and, 
at first, you know, my dad was like, look, we're Americans. We've never lost a war. We're not going to, you know, we're staying here. I've got my business, my life here. But right around December of 73, and the country fell uh, in 74, I think March, April, he just said, look, it's too dangerous for you guys here. I'm going to send you home to your mother uh, in Orange County. Your dad moved you to Vietnam in the back quarter of the war, back third of the war. The war was still going on. Yeah, absolutely. Right before the country fell. I mean, the country, and again, his mind, he was a Marine, but he went over there as an American civilian. But, and, and I think the American mind too was like, we've never lost a war. We're not going to lose a war. You know, it's safe to bring my kids here. We're going to get, we lived in Saigon and we lived in a compound and it's going to be, it's going to be fine. We'll figure this thing out. Right. And when the, if, when it got really dangerous, he said, I got to send you guys home. This was like December 14th of uh, 73. And, um, the night before we were leaving uh, on the plane the next day, my dad left my brother and I alone at a friend's house, a three-story house with a flat top roof, kind of the European houses, not the um, A-frame types where they have like the uh, patio on the roof. And we went up there and we were playing and uh, we're goofing around. And my brother, I, I dared him to kick this wire, this big electrical wire that was hanging over uh, the patio area three stories up and he kicked it and uh, it was live 80,000 volts. So he got thrown back, hits the ground and you know, he basically died in my arms. So this is my hero, my rock. So. And what age are you at this point then? I'm 10. My older brother's 12. Yeah. So at that time, you know, I was there with my father and uh, you know, um, until the day he died at 58, he never had a conversation with me about that. Um, you know, Hey, it's going to be tough for you. It's gonna, you know, this is your brother. It's going to hurt. He was so lost in his own grief, so lost in his own misery that he would just drink and cry. So at 10 was the age I started drinking. My dad owned a little bar restaurant in Saigon at night. I would, I would go into it cause we lived upstairs above it. Well, why wait then? You might as well get right to it. <laughs> yeah. Right. With alcohol. <laughs> well, because at 10, I, I saw my, I had this pain inside of me and I saw how my dad dealt with pain. He dealt with pain by drinking. And I thought that's what you did. So late at night after the bar would close, I would go sneak in or early in the morning and I'd open up a bottle of vodka and I'd start drinking. You know, um, it, it just was, look, I didn't have anybody to console me after his death. My mom was Japanese. She barely spoke the language. Um, so, you know, I learned to take care of myself emotionally. I learned that, you know, big boys don't cry. I learned you don't talk about your feelings. I learned you sucked it up. You just sucked it up. And I think that was the thing, you know, look, nobody can hurt me. Nobody's going to touch me. And I think that was the whole idea of why, you know, I wanted to be bigger, stronger, faster. You know, I wanted to have this meat suit on. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, I've heard you call it a meat suit. <laughs> I, I call it a meat suit because... And you're not, I wasn't cognizant or aware at the time. It's only through time and reflection, you know, when you, you lift the hood up and you look under, can you say, oh, wow, that makes sense. That why I did that. That's why I did that. I think I was trying to protect that little kid inside, you know, who lost his hero. You know, I was trying to protect that little kid inside who was in pain and, and, and no one told him that it's going to be okay, that they loved him, that they needed him, that, 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 you know the world was still going to go on and that I was going to be okay. Your brother effectively dies in your arms at 10 years old and your father says nothing. And we just get on with our lives. You go back to school. He gets on with his life. Right. Well, he shipped me back to uh, America. I'd live with my mom by myself. So at 10 years old, I'm flying across, you know, three stops uh, back to California to live with my mother. And she, like I said, she was Japanese. She barely spoke the language. You know, there's not a very effusive emotional um, uh, culture. And yeah, you know, I love my mom. She's, you know, I loved her till, you know, she passed and it just wasn't who she was. So uh, I took care of myself. And I think the meat suit was that protection against the world, man. So nobody could ever hurt me, you know, and I, and the drive to get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger to dish out the punishment. But I, I call it a meat suit because what kept me safe also kept me in prison. You know, I didn't understand intimacy. I didn't understand what a loving relationship was. I didn't understand how to fill that empty part inside of me. And I had tremendous success. 
from getting a football scholarship, from playing a little professional football, from, you know, being on TV and, and, you know, action figures, the tonight show, good morning, America, whatever you want to call it done it, you know, big posters, billboards, Tons of magazine covers and TV, I mean, co- cover TV, you were the man. TV guys so. are the man <laughs> at, at a young age. Right. I mean, that's the other thing as a young athlete. I mean, you were getting a lot of accolades and a lot of recognition uh, while you were still a teenager. Yeah. Uh, well, out of high school, nobody wanted me. <laughs> nobody okay, wanted so me. That's another college? story. But yeah, college, I started to, get, I got good in college and I got good after that. And uh, that's when, um, but look, you know, it, it was when I had more than I ever thought I would have as far as career. And all of that stuff did not feel, fill this empty gnawing in part of me. You know, and I thought all the drinking and drugs and the partying and stuff was, I, I thought it was, you know, just part of having a good time. Having, I'm having fun. Yeah, I'm successful. Whoa, hey, let's, let's do this. Let's do that. You know, and all the women and all that stuff. I just thought that was part of it. But even though I had everything, I would find myself a lot of times, Chris, you know, high out of my mind in the morning after parting hard, I would just wake up and I would just be crying lying on the floor crying in like a, a bucket of spit, you know, just where I was like drooling out of my mouth. And I just said, whoa, there's something wrong here. And it was that whole idea of, you know, not understanding, not dealing with that childhood wound that, uh, that um, you know, was my Achilles heel. It was the thing that was going to destroy me like it destroyed my father. So my father never dealt with his pain and never dealt with the guilt of losing my brother. He never raised his hand and said, I need help. He was a Marine. He was a man's man. I don't need anybody's help, but he became an addict, you know, alcohol. Then it was cocaine. Then it was um, opioids, you know, a bunch of rehabs and eventually died of an opioid overdose. And, you know, I knew I had to raise my hand because how can you have everything you want, Chris, and, and wake up on the floor crying? more than you've ever thought, you know, just like something's wrong. So that's when I raised my hand and, and it was a time when, you know, therapy and that, you know, it just wasn't like it is now, you know, where it wasn't as accepted. And I said, look, I need some help, man. Something's wrong. And I eventually, where where did you go for that help? I I went to a therapist and I, you know, I started, I started at a young age. I started, I was into personal development, but it was always about success. It was never really about happiness. Is about success. How do you achieve more? How do you do more? But it wasn't uh, about how are you happy? How do you find fulfillment? How do you find contentment? How do you find, you know, um, inner peace? Is always about go, 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 go. I was on that hamster wheel. Oh, Look, I even that's just, the answer, hmm? right, Dan? More stuff. You just um, have the right cars, <laughs> dude. I subscribe, Chris. I I just I subscribed to that for a long time, and I still, you know, sometimes I'm a victim to the marketing out there. You know, you have this outfit, you buy this bag, you buy this car, you know, you're, you're better. Um, I, and still, it, it's been a lifelong journey. Like I got married in my mid thirties because I still felt like I was missing something and nobody, you know, I mean, everybody was talking about, you know, oh, true love, you know, true love. When you find true love, you'll be happy. And I'm like, I'm missing something. So maybe it's true love. So I met a girl had a good family. Her parents have been married a long time. And I said, Hey, I'm going to give this a shot. You know, I'm going to give this a try. You know, maybe true love is it. I, I don't know if I really truly love her, but maybe a committed relationship, you know, maybe a monogamy and maybe that's it. And I can tell you, that obviously it didn't end well. <laughs> and, um, you know, and that's what my, that's what my personal evolution has been since, you know, I've was a, as a young kid is to try to learn to walk towards a place I want to go to try to learn to be whole, try to be a, a human being where, you know, I can find contentment and, and fulfillment and, and meaning and purpose in my life. And I, I feel like the last five, seven, eight years, I finally found it. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to wear. It's a beautiful thing to sink into. I mean, so clearly you're a guy who's unpacked a lot of Samsonites and uh, were I to find myself in a similar situation, how do you unpack those Samsonites? You, you've overcome, you've walked through tremendous fire around loss and personal pain and suffering and physical pain and suffering. And you decided to go do some serious work. And so maybe tell me a little bit about your thoughts on how to unpack those Samsonites. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said serious work. 
You know, I think too many times we look outside of ourselves. You know, we look for something to heal us, some magic, you know, especially in this day and age. What's the hack? What's the hack for happiness? What's the hack to feel better? What's the hack to love myself? And it's a lot of little things done repetitively over time that I think that heals. But the first thing is, is awareness. Look, something's not right. You know, I, I'm not happy. Let me not go, let me sit in that and not go buy another car, not go buy another home, not go, um, you know, have seven drinks tonight, not go and, you know, smoke a, a big bowl and, and, you know, just forget about it till tomorrow. So you have to be able to be willing to sit in that and be aware of it. And, you know, for me, the way I've overcome understanding loss is like with my mother, she died um, about two years ago. And I finally really understood the, the cycle of life. And with her, I allowed myself to grieve. I didn't felt like I needed to man up and be the tough guy. You know, I don't feel anything. I think we put way too much emphasis on how quickly we can overcome something. I let myself feel the grief, the loss. But then I did something key that's changed. It changed the whole process for me is I found a memory of my mom where she was happy. And it was this memory when she was, Towards the, the end, she was in bed and she had gone through a bunch of rounds of chemotherapy, but she's still care, coherent and talking. And she was in a little bedroom in her house and I was coming in and I was talking to her and I, I opened her, her blinds in her window and the window was still gray. It was still gray. The sunshine wouldn't come in. I, I realized that window had probably not been washed in 25 to 30 years. They just didn't open the blinds. So I went and got Windex and I sprayed the inside of the window, cleaned it up with Windex and a newspaper went outside and it was a beautiful blue day and cleaned out the outside of the window. As I cleaned the outside of the window, the sun shined in on my mother and she could see me outside in her backyard and she's waving at me and she's smiling and the sun hit her face and, it, and she just looked so beautiful. And she was just looking and smiling and waving and I was waving at her in and I, I felt I let the light in, I let the sun shine in. So whenever I started to feel those sad emotions, I would think of that happy time where I saw my mom and she was really happy in that moment. And now what I do is I, I've trained my mind. Whenever I start to feel the sadness come in, I think of that happy moment and I know that's what she would have wanted. I know that was a way to honor her. So for me, my life has been coming up with different ways to find happiness to find meaning and fulfillment. I think the biggest thing that changed my life was back, you know, six years ago, which everything came to fruition was when I had the heart attack, you know, it was like down goes nitro down goes nitro. And you know, I'm in the back of the ambulance. They wheel me into the uh, emergency room and I'm conscious. And the doctor, you know, my, my, my feels like somebody stepping on my chest and it's hard to breathe. And I'm clenching my, uh, I, I'm clenching my left arm. Like I'm curling it up and grabbing my chest cause it's painful. And I talked to the doctor and, and he says, okay, you know, you run through all the tests and they said, you've had, you're having a heart attack. You know, it's been like two and a half hours. And, and I, I asked him this question because I want to know, this is the kind of guy I am. I said, look, I got to ask you straight up. Am I going to die? And the doctor looks at me and I'm looking for reassurance. Like, no, no, man, well, you know, we're not losing the gladiator on our watch. I was looking for reassurance. You're not going to die. You're going to be just fine. Right. That's what you want. That's what you want. And instead, he just kind of looked at me and said, look, you've been having a heart attack for three hours. We're going to get you into surgery. And we're going to do everything we can. And in that moment of not knowing if I was going to live or die, I got to me what were the answers to my life? And the way that presented it itself was the only thing that was important at that time. It wasn't the house, the size of my home. It wasn't the plaques on my walls. It wasn't, you know, the, 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 the German cars in my driveway. The only thing that mattered to me is that I wanted the people I loved close to me. And I wanted them to know how much I love them. And that right there was just so profound because I didn't really care about that that much before that. Eh, that's my family. Yeah, they're people, you know, great. Oh, hey, great Christmas. I'll see you. Hey, sis. Oh, yeah, I'll see you. You know, I, I, I just didn't have those roots into them. And, and my, I was busy and my friends as well. So when I survived, obviously, I decided, you know what? That was the most damn important thing to me. 
I have to move that up on my list of values and what's important, right? And I have to design my days and my life where I put a lot of time in that bucket because that's what was important to me. And I also, you know, learn not to waste time on things that are not important with people who are. And that's the hardest one. Say that line again. <laughs> Don't waste time on things that are not important with people who are. We get so caught up in wanting yeah. to win and being right and being triggered by our past and, you know, sticking up for ourselves and defending, you know, and all our stupid things. Oh, you left the dishes out. Oh, you didn't do that. And we are, it's just like, do not waste time on things that are, are important with, or are not important with people who are. Such a powerful one. And, and, you know, we can just give it up. Yesterday, my wife, Carrie, and I got into a dust up. <laughs> I, like how you, I like how you say that, a dust up. <laughs> well, she's very feisty, right? She's Sicilian and shit. She wants to, you know, smash me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I can be a little uppity. So anyway, if you had seen us together for that sort of 45-second interaction, you would have thought, A, it was a horrible interaction, and B, we probably have a terrible marriage. Anyway, I was in the process of leaving. I had to go. So I left. I come back two hours later or whatever it was. And she literally looks at me and she says, we good? I said, yep, we're good. We gave each other a hug and a kiss. And that was that. Like it doesn't, it just, so what? We both behave badly. I apologize. She apologized. Done. I like the way you're, be, you're able to put it behind you. What would alarm me in that situation is that you guys brush stuff under the covers, under the carpet, and you don't deal with the core issue. So if you do not deal with the core issue, then there's a high like, like, like likelihood that that same argument's going to happen over and over again. Well, so here's the thing. Um, we made this commitment to each other. Shit does not linger, linger like a fart in an elevator. Once it's handled, it's handled, and we never go back to it. No lingering. And so the minute it's over, we're holding hands, we're kissing, we're going for a walk, we're making dinner together, whatever it is. It's over. We're done. It's over. And it doesn't come back. I love that. If you're able to do that, I love that. And I, I aspire and admire. That's like gladiator shit right there, bro. That's easier than I thought. When you both commit to it, it's like very easy. It, you just, you realize it's stupid. You realize you're being an asshole. You're realizing you're saying terrible things to the person that you most want to be around. And you just say, fuck it. And, and it goes away. And if she drops it and you drop it, then it's dropped. I, I like it if you're able to do that. I, I'm, I, I, I'm from that school of argument. I should be in, I should be in a relationship where I'm able to t have a full range of feelings anger, sadness, happiness. I should be in a relationship and I should be allowed to do that. Um, and then I, I'm like you, I get angry. I, I, I speak my mind. I say, sometimes I don't say good things. And, and, uh, but you know, the, my girlfriend, she like puts the troops up, the Dukes come up and she's one of, she can stay mad for, it used to be a couple of days. And now, you know, now it's, sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's a couple hours. And, and then I just find myself where I'm the one who's making all the repair attempts, you know, I'm like, Hey honey, honey, even though if I'm right or wrong, you know, I just, I just don't like that, uh, that am animosity towards us. And the one thing that we could do in our relationship, it would be to be more like you, you know, and, let things uh, let things go. Yeah, I, th I think too. This is something else I realized, Chris. I realized time. I realized the number one motivation killer for people is that they think they've got so much time. You know, and th I talk to so many people. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Oh, I'll do it later. Oh, I'll do it someday. If you really understood that your time is not guaranteed it lights a fire in your ass. And I, I, I know that time isn't guaranteed. I know because, you know, we talked about, I lost my older brother when I was 10, he was 12. I lost my younger brother when he was 44. I lost my dad when he was 58. I almost lost my life when I was 49. And I almost lost my life again, 15 months ago when I had the pulmonary embolisms. And once you realize that time is not guaranteed, that you may not get tomorrow. You look at Kobe Bryant, 41 years old. He thought he had time. He did so much in his life. But every everyone just thinks they have so much time. You do not, man. You've got to go out right now and you've got to do the things you want to do. You have to go and you know follow the dreams deep in your heart. You have to go reconcile those old hurts because the last thing you want is to have regrets. You know, have regrets when your time comes. Yes, and our time's going to come.
And there's a very good chance it's going to be a surprise. It, it, look, I've seen it. I've seen it, man. But if you live, you know, by that philosophy, you know, that time isn't guaranteed. And it's not cynical. It's not cynical. I, I talked to my girlfriend about this. You know, I say, look, like we were talking about earlier, Chris, I said, look, you know, I've had a heart attack under, you know, uh, 50 years old. I've had blood clots. I've had all this shit. You know, if you didn't, if I didn't know me, <laughs> if I didn't know me that I had nine live, lives, I would, you know, if you talk to a doctor, okay, there, here's this patient, 49 years old, heart attack, 54 years old, uh, four DVTs in his leg and two pulmonary embolisms. How long is this person likely going to live? And the guy's going to say 10 years. Yeah. You know, okay. So I'm super healthy. You add another 10 years. And it's not cynical to think like this. It's just be looking at the data. Right. And so this doesn't make me sad. I don't get like, oh my God, I only got 20 years. It lights a fire under my ass. I think, you know, look, I can only have 20 Christmases left if I'm lucky. Right. You know, right. I, I can have 20 trips, you know, good vacations left if I take a, you know, two week one each year. What do I want to do with that time? And when you have that kind of focus and, and you value time that way, it makes you very, very clear. Like I've had uh, three bucket trips that I've wanted to take all my life, Bora Bora. Uh, safari in Africa and Nepal. And when I was in my twenties, I, you know, late twenties, thirties, I had the money to go to Bora Bora. I says, Oh no, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to do that someday. And 25 years later, I had never gone. So I was a someday guy, even though I'd done a lot. And so I've also taken that word someday out of my vocabulary. Now I'll say, okay, yeah, next year I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to calendar this. And when you have that approach, it lets you be laser focused. Okay, I need to get to Bora Bora. How am I going to get there? Well, that means I have to say no to X, Y, and Z. That means I need to save X amount. So, and I ended up going to Bora Bora with my girlfriend um, last March or May, and I'm going to Nepal um, this fall. Getting shit done, Chris. <laughs> you sound busy. I hate that word, busy. I don't mean it in a negative way. Like busy, like you're getting after it, like you're getting on with it. Yeah, bit bit busy to me is just I just hate that word. I you know I don't mean it. In a no, no. When way. I when I when I coach people, like you know, they, you know, they say I'm busy. I'm I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm like, well, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, sure. Like, what are you doing? Well, what you know, I, I I'm going. I'm I'm taking my kid. We're going away for this weekend. I've got school. I've got, I said. So what you're really saying to me is your life is chock full of great things. Oh yeah. I said drop that freaking word busy. And switch it for my life is chock full of great things. And, you know, people are busy because they try to manage time instead of manage their focus. When you manage your focus instead of manage time, then you get shit done. You know, that's something that um, Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan's and Dwayne Wade's guy, a guy named Tim Grover, you know, he talks a lot about that. And we, we had a conversation. He was saying like, look, they never, I never managed time with them. I always managed focus. And I said, Wow you know what? Uh, distraction to me is the gatekeeper of dreams. Distraction in our day and age is the gatekeeper to your dreams and happiness. So it's another way of saying manage focus because we can't stay focused for you know f two minutes. We get that pull to pick up our phone. We get that pull to buy something. Manage your focus. It's interesting when I need to get something done, that's exactly right. I sit there like, for example, writing. You know, I sit there in a place I'm comfortable and very, very happy. I put on headphones because I like music when I write and like, I'm just going to disappear and I'm going to stop doing this when I'm done doing this. And that might be 20 minutes and it might be two hours, but I'm just going to sit here and, and you can't have notifications on and you can't, none of that shit, right? You can't check fucking Twitter <laughs> stupidities. Well, what's beautiful about what you said is you have a ritual. I'm going to put my headphones on. I'm going to turn music on and I'm going to turn off notifications. You have a starting ritual, headphones, music, which cues your brain to go to work, right? And then you, you know, you have to turn off the notifications. So many people don't have those starting rituals. You know, one that I use all the time, maybe sound kind of cheesy to you. <laughs> and this is the one I, I started using um, uh, when I came home from the hospital uh, from the heart attack and I was upstairs lying in the bed and I, I didn't want to do anything. I was almost maybe a depressive about, and uh, my friend, a couple of friends actually sent me just to make to cheer me up. They sent me old American Gladiator tapes, you know, like links to YouTube from American Gladiators, just to make me laugh. Yeah. And so you could see yourself in the in your glory days. I could, see, yeah, and it did make me laugh, you know. So I was kind of laughing, but that day 
know, when you get home from the hospital from a heart attack, they tell you, you know, be careful going up and down stairs. You know, don't lift anything heavy, like taking the trash out. You know, you could blow your, um, uh, whatever they call those stents and, you know, you could die, you know? So I'm like, Oh God, you know, you're, there's fear in there. And uh, so I'm laying in bed. I, had, I hadn't done anything that day. And my goal for that day was to walk down the 24 stairs in my house down to my refrigerator and not die. That was my whole goal, but I couldn't even get myself to do that. Always a good goal. Yeah, it, it was a good goal, but to get up and do and move something, you know? So, uh, they kept sending me these things. And, uh, the one thing I noticed was that before every event in American Gladiators, and like any sporting event, any event that you do, there's always a countdown sequence. And we had this referee named Larry Thompson, and he would always say, Gladiator ready, contender ready, three, two, one, go. And I remember whether I had my jock strap on or not, whether my shoes were tied, regardless of what happened, whenever he did that, glad you're ready, content, ready, go, three, two, one, go. I always got up and I started jousting, firing tennis ball cannons, you know, uh, putting lights out, you know, being nitro, right? So I said to myself, I wonder if that's going to work. And so I, I laid there in bed after my heart attack and I'm like, Gladiator ready, <laughs> contender ready, three, two, one, go. And I sat up in bed and put my feet over the edge of the bed. Then I was like, gladiator ready, contender ready, three, two, one, go. I stood up, walked over the stairway, did it again, gladiator ready, contender ready, three, two, one, go, and made it all the way downstairs, touched the refrigerator, and I didn't die. And I used that over the next few- didn't blow any stents out? No, I used it the next few weeks. Like the next day, my goal was, you know, to touch my mailbox and not die. And I used the same thing, you know, gladiator ready, contender ready. And the next day it was to walk to my neighbor's house. And the fourth day it was to walk down to the corner and touch a stop sign. Each day, you know, I just worked to push myself a little bit further, a little bit further. And I think where, you know, a lot of people get stuck is and they get stuck in the gap of where they are now compared to where they want to be. And it becomes too overwhelming. But if they can just, you know, you can just take that little step, that little step. And I remind myself that all the time. I don't use gladiator ready too often. Maybe sometimes before sex now. <laughs> gladiator ready. Kim, Kim, you be the contender. Contender ready. Three, two, one, go. And then it's over. <laughs> Three, two, one, over. <laughs> oh, fuck. Well, Dan, it is awesome getting to know you and getting to hang out with you. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? No. I'm good. I'm good if you're good. Anything else you want to touch on? I, hey, I just want to thank you. Um, and I, I really, I'm glad you're podcasting. I think that um, people who've walked through fire, people who've been to the show, and particularly, you know, you're, you strike me as somebody who's reinvented himself many times in the process of unpacking all these Samsonites, right? We learn when people who've been through shit that we might be facing either now or at some point down the road are kind enough to share their experience. That's called teaching and learning, right? Yes. And so I just, I think it's cool that you're doing what you're doing now. And uh, yeah, I just really love getting to know you. And I, I keep, I, uh, I hope you keep, uh, um, you know, keep going at it with podcasting. I think you've got a great voice and um, you've got some good shit to share. You know, um, one thing, Chris, I love people. I just love people. I love the human human interaction. And, you know, I, I like my girlfriend. Like whenever we go someplace, I talk to everybody in the airport. I talk to everybody at the restaurants. I talk to everybody on the plane. You know, she's like, oh my God, you talk to everybody. You and me both. Yeah. I think that's why we both found podcasting. I mean, you much, much we earlier than I did. We can do a 10 part series just talking to each other. Yeah. I, I love people and, and I love talking and, you know, from having addiction issues, from having abandonment issues, from having anxiety issues, from overcoming all this, from having, where do I belong? How do I find love? How do I find meaning? How do I find one happiness? I talk to a lot of people and I've always found that I learned a lot more from people in their failures than I do of their success tales. And I think that's the most interesting thing because exactly what you said, man, you learn from people when they fall down and how they got back up because it's going to happen to all of us, man. It's going to happen to all of us. Everyone's going to get punched in the stomach. Everyone's going to go through something unexpected, whether it's divorce, losing a business, heartache, uh, losing someone in your life. And how do you find that resilience? How do you nitro up? How do you come back? And that's a lot about what I talk about on the on the Gladiator Way. Me and me and Jason, I can I don't know how to say his name. Jason D. I just call him Jason D. De Filippo. De Filippo. De Filippo. Hey, I'm so grateful for you having me on, bro. This is this has been great.
Thanks, Dan. Come back anytime. And uh, uh, as Joey Ramon said, hey ho, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do epic shit, brother. Thank you. Well, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nitro as much as I did. What a compelling and articulate and uh, engaging guy. I really appreciate that time with him. And I also encourage you to go to lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com and um, hit subscribe there for our newsletter, The Difference. All right. We would like to thank the incredible Dan Nitro Clark. Again, check out his uh, brand new podcast, The Gladiator Way. Dan Nitro Clark, The Gladiator Way. OneLifeFullyLive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Um, if you're in marketing, why not check out my marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. It's sort of the opposite of this podcast in a lot of ways. It's short. Each episode is focused on one topic, and uh, we dig into that topic and get out of Dodge. So if you want a quick bite of marketing madness, <laughs> check out Lockhead on Marketing. Uh, Dushka Zapata's best-selling book, How to Be Ferociously Happy and Other Essays. She's one of my absolute favorite authors. She's our most regular or reoccurring guest. She was our first guest. I love everything about her. Dushka Zapata, check out her writing today. Growthwire, uh, growwire.com. It's what legendary entrepreneurial growth-oriented folks are reading. Check out growwire.com today. My friends at Spiro.ai are the proactive relationship management company, and they want to help you uh, sell more. Check out Spiro.ai. My friends at Otranet have been building custom websites for B2B companies in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out A-T-R-E.N-E-T. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Uh, We need to remind you, if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you have one? Don't forget to cultivate your inner warrior, support your local athletes, buy John's crazy socks, tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Remember, most of the world is not enjoying podcasts right now. (laughs) Listen to Blue Rodeo and only buy pasture-raised free-range eggs because chickens are people too. All right. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Dr. Larry Nasser. Sorry, Larry, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you for investing part of your life with me. Uh, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.